In the first season of this podcast, I followed along with the Lyric Opera of Chicago as they prepared to come back from COVID in the fall of 2021. COVID may have had a bit of a resurgence, but that didn't stop the Lyric Opera's production of Macbeth from going off mostly without a hitch. The Joffrey Ballet has already made their comeback from COVID and performed for live audiences, but as Greg Cameron, the president and CEO of the Joffrey Ballet, told me, the return of their yearly production of The Nutcracker is definitely something a lot of people are looking for as a sign of a return to semi-normalcy. Last year, since we couldn't do The Nutcracker live, we were fortunate to be able to partner with uh, the Merchandise Smart folks and do Art on the Mart and do a, a five-minute Nutcracker. <laughs> you know, there were, I think, oh, about 70 performances last winter I saw probably 70% of them, you mm-hmm. know, standing on the side of the river with other people bundled up. Um, what's exciting this year is that at 7 o'clock, you can stop at the Merchandise Mart and see a little amuse-bouche, a little appetizer of the Nutcracker, yeah. and then walk down to the Lyric and be in your seat at 7.30 and, and get the full thing. Conrad, and this is Bringing Up the Lights, a podcast where I'll be giving you a behind-the-curtain look at the people involved in creating some of the biggest stage productions in the United States. For Christmas in this three-part season, I'll be following along with the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago as they prepare for their production of The Nutcracker in December of 2021. Greg Cameron has been with Joffrey since 2013, first as the executive director and now as the president and CEO since 2018. Running a ballet wasn't exactly the most obvious career move for him. Well, I've been here uh, a little over eight years now, so almost eight and a half years. Uh, I'm a a lifelong Chicagoan and have had uh, an entire career in Chicago working to support the the voices, the stories uh, that artists tell. So I started my career as an intern at the city's Department of Cultural Affairs back when Harold Washington was mayor. So almost 40 years ago, sort of like, where where does time go? <laughs> um, and, you know, and then worked for the city's department for uh, a couple of years before going over to the Museum of Contemporary Art um, back when the museum was on Ontario Street and was a much smaller institution and had... Uh, yeah, almost uh, a little over 20 years uh, of working at the Museum of Contemporary Art with a slight little detour in between the first tenure and the second tenure of being done at the Art Institute. Uh, and uh, while at the Art Institute, one of the wonderful benefits of working at the Art Institute, at least 20 plus years ago, was free tuition at the School of the Art Institute. So I'd studied art history. So, you know, the the visual arts is is the area where I actually have some academic expertise. Uh, I would say, in general, my expertise about the arts is more of a intuitive heart than brain mind. I really care more about what the arts make me think or feel. Um, and and it was you know frankly one of those issues that you know made me start to think you know like oh, maybe it's time to to move on from the MCA because the art market was beginning to be sort of the dominant force and how you know people were talking more about how much something cost than what it did to you 
and uh, well, and I'll go back. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit uh, too much. Well, when I was at the Art Institute, I, I did take classes and did all of the coursework for a master's in art history, more for myself. And in that said, I never finished my master's thesis. And at this point in time, I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was one of those things where, uh, you know, not enough time in, in the day to do it. Uh, I, I feel like you could probably go back to them and say, you know, I've, I, I've had enough career experience. Maybe we could we could just count that. I, you know, I thank you for saying that because I have often thought the same thing. Yeah. So maybe you're giving me an inspiration. I might I might uh, shoot a little email over to someone. You know, when I when I knew it was time to move on from the MCA, and and as a professional, I mean, I still am very very committed to the museum and uh, see the exhibitions there and. Uh, although a lot of the team members there have changed, uh, a, you know, a real strong connection to the museum, it was time to make a move. And I actually took a position at WTTW and WFMT. And as a kid growing up in Chicago, that was like my go-to. You know, we're mm-hmm. talking about the 1960s when there was, you know, two, five, seven, nine, and 11. You know, yeah. occasionally we could, if one of my brothers held the antenna, we could get channel 26 or channel 32. <laughs> but those were the, you know, those are the stations that you got. So I spent mm-hmm. lots of time watching, uh, you know, Masterpiece Theater, certainly a lot of the early theater that I saw was on television, yeah. Moliere and, uh, you know, and then, of course, in high school field trips to the Goodman to see uh, Eugene O'Neill. Uh, I remember a long day's journey into night. It seemed like it took mm-hmm. forever. Uh, but, yeah, so I had a really fun time at TTW and WFMT, and, and that sort of continued this thread of supporting the visual arts, supporting filmmakers, musicians, you know, community connections, civic engagement, uh, and then the opportunity to come to the Joffrey uh, presented itself to me, and I was like ready to not be the second in command anymore, but to be a partner with Ashley and really lead this organization. The Joffrey Ballet was founded in 1956, so it has a relatively short history. You know, over its 65 years, it's had peaks and valleys. Um, I think the the wonderful thing is that Joffrey, when he founded the company in 1956, you know, founded a ballet company that was meant to be a quintessentially American ballet company. Robert Joffrey actually spent more time in the studio teaching dance than trying to choreograph dance. Uh, so he was a teacher. I really love the space of of education and learning. And I I think one of the things that really attracted me to the Joffrey was this was an organization that had world-class reputation on the stage, had an academy that at that time was uh, about five years old, and then a strong commitment to the youth of the city uh, Mm -hmm. through our community engagement program. So it sort of took you know, my commitment to the city, to community, to the voices of artists, to arts education, and tied it up in one big ribbon. And I said, you know, I'm interested. And I had some great interviews, spent a great amount of time with Ashley, making sure that we were going to be a good duo because it's a unique relationship. 
uh, you know, the art museum world is a little more hierarchical. There's a director, and all of the curators report to the director. You know, here, Ashley reports to Ann Kaplan, who is our board chair, and I report to Ann Kaplan, who is our board chair. So it was important for Ashley and I to have a great relationship and and then to nurture that same sort of trust and respect with our board chair. And being the, the current board chair, Zach Lazar was the board chair for the first six years of my tenure. And we've done it beautifully. We like each other, we trust each other, we respect each other, and I think it's because we come to the work with a firm, firm commitment to the mission. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I don't have any like dance expertise. I took an acrobatics class as a kid in Bellwood, <laughs> Illinois, and yeah. my parents didn't encourage me to continue. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, I've learned a lot, and I, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about uh, the work that I've done, you know, all 40 years is uh, every day is an opportunity to learn more about artists and the art forms that they're using. Uh, so here for eight and a half years, I've been able to uh, get, let's say I've got maybe a, a bachelor's degree in dance now, maybe a few more yeah. years, and I'll have a master's in dance, not on the stage, but, you know, really understanding and, and watching what we what we can do and how we can honor Robert Joffrey's, you know, founding principles of uh, creating an inclusive, accessible, diverse ballet company. Uh, and I think it's equally exciting that, you know, Ashley is is the third artistic director. If you think about Robert Joffrey, and, you know, and Robert Joffrey died at a very young age, you know, so he founded the company with Jerry. Jerry then managed the company for many years uh, through some of its probably most challenging years and then Ashley who of course had danced in the company in the 1980s came to be the artistic director for the past 14 years um, and it's it's fun to to watch him and watch him work in the studio and in his commitment as an artistic director is not to be a choreographer but it is really leaning back into Robert Joffrey's passion. You know, Ashley is happiest when he's in the studio working with the company artists uh, and in the academy teaching the next generation of company artists. As soon as you say the word ballet, people already have some pretty strong feelings about it one way or the other. You know, when I took yeah. the job, you know, a few of my friends said, you like ballet? And, and I was like, well, what do you, you know, what, what do you mean? And, and I, I immediately knew what they meant. You know, they were picturing a music box with mm-hmm. a little ballerina and a tutu. That, that for them, that was what ballet was. And I, yeah. I think, you know, what ballet is to those of us that are part of this team is about the dance and the work that we do in CPS. And we're teaching hip hop. You know, we're teaching modern jazz dance as well as ballet. The same in the academy here. And uh, for anybody that has recently seen the Joffrey perform, I mean, our inaugural program at the Lyric for very, very different pieces, the Arpino piece being very, very classical ballet, Chanel de Silva's piece, Swing Low, you know, is, is dance. You know, ballet is one of the languages that we speak here at the Joffrey. In the first season of this podcast, COVID was definitely the elephant in the room. 
Joffrey Ballet, on the other hand, had already had their big comeback from the shutdown. I was talking a few weeks before we opened our program. Kathy Brown, who is the executive director of New York City Ballet, said, Greg, if you don't have a Kleenex sponsor for your opening yet, get one. She said there won't be a dry eye in the theater. <laughs> and uh, we, didn't, we didn't get a Kleenex sponsor, but I think there were lots and lots of tears of joy. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's out of the gate. Regardless of what happened during the COVID shutdown, this season was going to be a special one because of the Joffrey Ballet's new home at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Over the last year, we've spent a lot of extra time getting to know our new partners even better and really planning uh, in lockstep how to open seasons and how to do that together for audiences that were perhaps hesitant, frightened, unsure of what it was, you know, what, what live theater was going to look like. So I think the work, especially that we did probably over the last nine months, really got us ready, you know, to make sure that we were going to create uh, a safe and healthy experience for our visitors and the same for the company artists and all of the stagehands and the wardrobe folks backstage. Uh, and it was, you know, the opening program in October was an absolute victory. It was a victory artistically. It was so energizing to be in that lobby, welcoming people to the theater, talking through a mask, but not talking about COVID. People, Mm -hmm. you know, suddenly you were in the theater. Yes, you had to show your proof of vaccination and you had to wear your mask. But when people got to the performance, it was that wasn't what the conversation was about. It was about the joy and the power of the art form. And uh, it was just ma- totally, totally magical to be at the performances, to hear about the experience from the dancer's perspective on stage, to engage with a wide range of our single ticket buyers, subscribers, board members, in that return to, to live experience. The Auditorium Theater previously served as the home of the Joffrey Ballet, and it was a relationship that served both sides really well, but their partnership with Lyric Opera will really take things up a notch. There is so much trust and respect between the Lyric team and uh, the Joffrey team, uh, the alignment of both being uh, arts organizations that create work I think is one of the strengths, uh, and this is, I, I don't say this in a disparaging way to the Auditorium Theater at all. I mean, the Auditorium is an amazing venue, but the Auditorium presents art, it doesn't create art. And I think for us to be a partner with the Lyric, who is creating and commissioning new work, uh, and us doing the same. Uh, is really, really powerful for both the respective individual institutions and then the ways that we intersect and come together, you know, both artistically and on the, you know, the backside, the business side, which most people don't care about. And we we don't really want people to be thinking about that. But if we can create synergies and efficiencies back of house that can enable us to spend less on X, Y, and Z, we can invest more in the, the things that people do, uh, you know, do care about. So it's, it's quite exciting. Um, I think we're all really 
looking forward to being back in the house with the Nutcracker on the stage. Now, of course, it's time for Joffrey's yearly production of The Nutcracker, something everyone was missing last year. Last year, since we couldn't do The Nutcracker live, we were fortunate to be able to partner with uh, the Merchandise Smart folks and do Art on the Mart and do a a five-minute Nutcracker. (laughs) You know, there were, I think... Oh, about 70 performances last winter. I saw probably 70% of them, Mm -hmm. you know, standing on the side of the river with other people bundled up. Um, What's exciting this year is that at 7 o'clock, you can stop at the Merchandise Mart and see a little amuse-bouche, a little appetizer of the Nutcracker, and then walk down to the Lyric and be in your seat at 7.30 and and get the full thing. I I was about to say five minutes. It's basically a trailer for the Nutcracker. Yeah, Yeah. you're very, very, very correct in that. I, I, you know, it was, I think the team that we worked with did a really great job of creating something that, you know, gave people, especially last year, like a, a lifeline. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's winter in Chicago. It's yeah. dark. It's cold. Even without we're, COVID. Yeah, we're yeah. masked. We're, you know, in what, you know, what makes us all feel a little more alive is is light. And lighting up the facade of that building with, uh, you know, the magic of of dance. I, you know, it was quite, it was quite beautiful. The Nutcracker is a holiday tradition, but what goes into the decision-making process for picking the other productions during the Joffrey season? It's really Ashley, you know, who is our Mary B. Galvin artistic director. I mean, Ashley really sets the course for what an artistic season is going to look like. And, and then I think the team comes together and we look at, okay, these are the you know, the works that we would like to do. And, and we can't really look at a lens of one year, you know, because we, you know, we do the Nutcracker in three other programs, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's really looking at, you know, two, three years out and how do we find and create a balance that achieves the artistic goals that Ashley has, which really are Honoring Robert Joffrey's commitment to classical ballet, but always pushing to commission and do new work. And Joffrey was engaging choreographers that were unknown. You know, I mean, Twyla Tharp, you know, his mm-hmm. first major piece for a ballet company was a commission from Robert Joffrey. I want to say maybe like 1963, 64, 65, don't quote me on the, the date. But, you know, so Robert Joffrey always had this sort of view of, you know, looking at, at what's new. And I think Ashley brings that same spirit to the table. Um, you know, this past year we opened our season with the Mixed Rep program, four pieces, um, because we, you know, when we had to plan a season, we were uncertain if we would even have a season. Mm-hmm. Things were so still in flux with... Uh, COVID and what sort of protocols might be necessary to get into the theater. You know, if we were going to have to have social distancing in a theater with seating, you know, we're, we're looking at the options. And to be very honest, none of the options made sense from an economic model. You know, nonprofit dance is nonprofit dance. Right. You know, we like to cover our expenses. 
very rarely do we have surpluses, <laughs> um, but we didn't want to, you know, open our inaugural season at the Lyric and not have you know, houses that felt robust and full and and in where we could cover our expenses. So we, doing a mixed rep program is less expensive. You don't have all of the set elements. You don't have all of the costumes. Not as many artists in each piece so that's you know that was a very deliberate decision to say let's start the season with a mixed rep program get to the nutcracker hopefully be in a place where you know health and safety can be managed and then let's bring don quixote to the stage in the spring and don quixote was supposed to be the final program that we had done would have done at the auditorium thesis theater in our final season there but that was canceled mm -hmm. you know that would have been april may um of 2020 um so we just you know we own that production so it was easy to sort of shift it around uh, then we had entered into uh, a commission uh with kathy marsden who had uh, created a beautiful jane eyre which uh, Kathy is grading a piece based on Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men that mm -hmm. will have a world premiere in April of 2022. That was something that we had committed to before the pandemic and we were able to keep it moving. You know, Kathy's a, a choreographer, she lives in Switzerland. You know, lots of moving parts of, well, we can't get her to from Switzerland to Chicago because of travel yeah. bans. Well, she started her choreography via Zoom with the company artists. <laughs> Got that worked through. We ultimately were able to get her here for six weeks where she actually completed the piece and then she returned home and she will be back here in the spring to finalize the piece so we can open that uh, come, come April. That, that's interesting. I never would have even thought of of mice and men for for ballet that's 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 interesting now i would i would say nor nor would i and i think you will be i, I mean it is amazing how she translates and both of her parents were literature teachers and how she translates you know literature that is you know certainly i mean mice and men is certainly a part of the the canon mm -hmm. um it's, it's beautiful how she translates the piece. And, you know, I kept thinking, like, well, there aren't that many women in, of mice and men. And, you know, <laughs> ballet companies tend to have more women than men. Yeah. Um, but she's, you know, she's created some parts that aren't necessarily included in the book. I think this is one of the joys of, you know, having artists look at things that we think we know so well and have us look at it through a completely fresh and different perspective. Um, and, and I guess that's, you know, selfishly for me, you know, what I loved about, you know, my years at the Museum of Contemporary Art and what I love about contemporary artists and, you know, is the ability to sort of look at art made in the time that I'm living as opposed to looking at stuff that was made yeah, you know, in the early 1900s when I wasn't around. Not to say that I'm not interested in it, yeah. um, but so I think that balance of, you know, of work and reinterpreting 
classics is, is pretty exciting. I'll talk to Ashley Weeder, the artistic director, about what goes into preparing for an actual performance in the third and final part of this season. But the dancers have to have a stage to perform on, and that's where production director Cody Chen comes into the picture. Much like Greg Cameron, Cody took a few twists and turns on his journey to the Joffrey Ballet. I was born and raised in China. I came to the States in 2008 to pursue my Master's of Fine Arts degree in stage management from the University of Illinois at Banner-Champaign. After I graduated from grad school, I went on to work in New York, Singapore, and San Francisco, mostly as a freelance stage manager, production manager, mostly for dance companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I once I was finished with my touring career, uh, I moved to Minneapolis to be the associate production manager for the Children's Theatre Company there. And while I was in Minneapolis, I got a call uh, from a, a professional network who works at the Joffrey and introduced me to the company, to the, to the job. So I joined the Joffrey in 2018 as the production manager. And as of July this year, I was promoted to be the director of production. And what I do at a Joffrey, a simple way to put it is that anything and everything that happened behind the curtain you know, I kind of coordinate that support, um, mostly the technical side of it, from scenery to props to lighting to audio costumes. I kind of manage that um, budget, labor, um, and schedule, and all that kind of thing. I have been doing this um, for over a decade, first as a stage mm-hmm. manager and now as a production manager. So that's kind of my background and how I got to the Joffrey. Cody knew he wanted to work in performing arts, but the choice of ballet specifically was one that was actually kind of made for him in a way. It was interesting because before I came to the States to study theater, I have never done theater in China. So, and when I came here, you know, as as somebody who is new and green and naive, and I was like, wow, I want to go on Broadway. I want to be one of the Broadway stage manager. And quickly I learned that in order to be a Broadway stage manager, I need to join the Actors Actors Equity Association, AEA. Mm -hmm. And because I am a non-citizen, I am not eligible to do that. So I'd be like, okay, Broadway closed this door on me. What am I going to do now? You know, Mm -hmm. and and I pivoted to dance because, you know, if you're working for a touring dance company, single choreographer company, you, you don't necessarily need that union affiliation. So that's kind of more of a, for a practical reason that I switched to dance. Um, and once I, I started working on dance, I felt that I love this particular art form, this particular genre, mm-hmm. um, in a sense that, you know, it gave me more freedom, freedom, more artistic input into it that you know when i call the show lights and sound and things like that i create my own core script and i communicate with the designers based on my understanding of the piece and and that's something that was exciting to me uh it was gratifying to me rather than oh the actor read this line and walk this place and then the lights goes up this is more like 
okay, does your light introduce the dance? Does the energy shift? You know, da da da. I feel like I have more of a contribution to the whole process. What has the move to the lyric opera been like for Cody and his team? Working at the the Lyric Opera House is like a dream, because it's it's a fantastic theater. They have great infrastructure there. They have great crew members there. Um, they're very welcoming, very collaborative. I will say one particular challenge that we encountered since moving there is the sound situation, because at the Opera House mostly. For the opera, they do acoustic productions. They have an orchestra. The singers sing live. They have, you know, very gentle、um, miking amplification of their orchestra and stage, if any. For the ballet, we are used to amplifying the orchestra.、Mm-hmm. So then you go to the house that That is not beautiful. That the opera house is very much beautiful acoustic productions, and now we go in to do amplified orchestra. How to make it sound nat- natural?、Mm-hmm. How to make it sound good? Is something that we are we are still working on and 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 still improving, finding room to improve. What's the production process like for Nutcracker and other productions throughout the season? Usually.、Um, Day one is when we load the trucks of all the production assets,、mm-hmm. lights, sound. I mean, light, yeah, sound equipment, scenery, props, and costumes onto truck and unload the trucks at a theater.、Mm-hmm. Once everything is unloaded, we immediately work on hanging the production, scenery, and props, and sorting things away. Um, unpacking the costumes, setting them, pressing them. You know, lighting. We have. Um, anywhere between 200 to 500 lights in the air, we need to、uh, focus those lights, make sure that they go the right direction that they go, color,、um, intensity,、um, that. So that usually takes about two to three days, depends on you know the size of the production. And then after that's done, we bring the the dancers, the artists on stage. Then we do a technical rehearsal or several technical rehearsals rather to I would say merge the the dance with the technology with the design together. And then from there, we do a dress rehearsal, make sure that everything goes fine according to plan, and we open the show. And from that on. Many people think that oh the show is open you know the the work is done it's not done yet you know for the Nutcracker this year we have twenty six shows we need to make sure that every single production you know is is consistent you know you won't see one show you have a lot of snow and the other show there's no snow like that wouldn't happen so maintain、uh, the quality of the production throughout the run and then once the final production. Is given the curtain falls down, people go away, dancers go away, the production team comes back. We start taking everything down from the air, from the dressing room, wherever,、mm-hmm. loading them back on the truck and loading them back to our warehouse.、Um, so that's usually、um, what it entails in terms of you know a production process in the in the theater. But then before we load the truck, there is a lot of preparation at the warehouse. We need to make sure that everything、um, still works, you know, in good condition and things like that. Costumes, fits of dancers, and after、mm-hmm. uh, the show is done, when we come back, we do a post mortem 
um, to discuss what were some of the particular challenges that we encountered and how do we do better in the future. So it can be somewhere between several months to you know, years, like Nutcracker, because we do it every year, so it's yeah. just constantly going. Michael Smallwood, the technical director at Lyric Opera of Chicago, told me last season that he's constantly juggling multiple productions in various stages of completion. So is that what Cody's day-to-day -day life is like, too? When we are in the budgeting phase, we do a five-year planning. You know, the artistic director would, would kind of have an idea of what they want to do the next five years, and then it trickled down to each department. I'm sure the marketing, you know, and will figure out how much tickets they can sell with certain productions. You know, the development department will figure out how much money they can raise. For the production department, since we are a big spending arm of the company, we spend the money, right? So yeah. I would need to figure out, okay, uh, how, how much time and money and labor it takes to set up a certain production. For example, setting up a Nutcracker is very different from setting up a mixed repertoire production that has you know, little sceneries and things like that. So for me, I, I look at that. But at this day and age, you cannot budget down to pennies because things are constantly changing. For example, after the pandemic, right now suddenly there is a huge trucker shortage and then the trucking costs will just go up and up and up. You know, so all that kind of thing. And then same thing during the pandemic, the lumber price went skyrocketed. You know, the steel price went skyrocketed. This is something that you you can't anticipate. Like you can't just budget 20% increase of the raw material, you know, three years in advance. Um, so so that's a challenge. Then once we have the five year planning, five year budget, then it comes down to boils down to more nitty-gritty like we are looking at right now I'm budgeting for next season like how much next season um, will cost um, so that goes through several phrases you know budgeting is never just one and done it sometimes it can be 10 versions 20 versions now that is more like immediate future but then on top of that the nutcracker is happening I'm still looking at this year's budget and how how much variance there are you know, with the current production and I'm looking at the productions coming up in February we are doing the Don Quixote so a lot of preparations happens now you know we're going on tour to California in March and May and that all happens right now I'm contracting uh, designers to come in and, and do the work there all the flights and hotels that are being booked right now so so as you, you see like it, it can go from day to day week to week to a year, three year, five years down. And sometimes they all happen at the same time. When they finally bring up the lights on the Nutcracker this year, what is Greg Cameron hoping people will see? The wonderful thing about the Nutcracker, and uh, I probably attend most of the performances, mm -hmm. is that pure realization of you know, what live performance is. It is different every night. And one of the things that really makes it different is that a different group of people, you know, you've imagined, you know, 2,000 people funneling through and coming into the, to the Lyric Opera and sitting down. They don't know each other. Some of them might be family members, but they have this shared magical experience. And then they leave and go back out into the world 
um, taking you know what they found from the performance and being able to sort of be a little bit of a, a fly on the wall, if you will. Uh, you know, maybe for the Nutcracker, I should say, a, a little rat in the corner watching, <laughs> since there are lots of rats in the Nutcracker. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is like goosebump uh, inducing, you know, to watch you know, a little kid come in, you know, a five-year-old with a 13-year-old with a parent, with a grandparent, and, and move into the theater. And the, you know, typically, you know, people want it to be quiet in the theater mm-hmm. and you hear little whispers and mommy did you see that or, and it's like it's exactly what it should be you know kids are having that oftentimes first first experience of what live theater is all about and and I think that's what you know makes me so happy and although I couldn't have that experience last year inside a theater mm-hmm. that's what drove me on cold cold nights and dark nights down to the river to watch the projections because the same thing happened you you could hear little kids and these you know and and kids i don't know they don't know the difference between five minutes and two hours you know i mean some kids will little kids might fall asleep during a performance parents might be happy if their you know restless one falls asleep but it's it, it truly is magical, and I think it's a, it's a way that we are giving back to this city that needs joy, mm-hmm. um, that needs kids to feel a sense of pride in in who they are and how they express themselves. You know, to watch, you know, the mother in the Nutcracker who was a single mom raising you know two children and you know a sculptress, you know creating the the golden statue. I mean, of course, some of this is, you know, artistic license, but most of the, you know, most of the sculpture work, most of the work that was done at the fair was done by women, immigrant women. Mm -hmm. So it's a a story that feels very, very relevant um, and, and, and beautiful at the holiday times and, frankly, you know, anytime. So that's exciting. What does Cody hope audiences will get out of their Nutcracker experience? Definitely the dance, the choreography is fantastic. Um, and also, um, just just from my perspective, the production pr- uh, perspective, I want people to come in and knowing that it's still going to be a technically stunning production. Like all the things that the audience you know, may have seen in our previous venue, they can expect that at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, if not better. We're going to make it, you know, look good. We're going to make it look great. And also, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Lyric Opera has such wonderful infrastructure. They have deeper stage. Um, they have higher proscenium. So the, the show will just look sleek, you know, there. So that's something that I, I really look forward to having the audience back and having the audience see it. And also just the fact that people return to live theater and and see this holiday tradition and can continue this tradition. There's something, you know, after the pandemic, I think that that's what everyone, you know, is after. That, that experience, live experience. In the second part of this look at the Joffrey Ballet's production of The Nutcracker, we'll focus on how the team puts together music and costumes and how both change from one year to the next. 
Bringing Up the Lights is an original series from Sound Concept Media. It's written and narrated by me, Keith Conrad. I also had help putting the podcast together from the team at Joffrey Ballet in Chicago and the Silverman Group. 